0: Hello, my name is David Castleman. I'm the founder and CEO of EcoFlix, the world's first not-for-profit streaming video service, where 100% of our subscription fees go directly to fund animal welfare NGOs around the world. Welcome to the EcoFlix podcast, where I have the opportunity to talk with some of the most inspiring people in the world. Every one of them share amazing insights into how we can all make a difference in the fight to save animals and our planet. I think they're amazing and fascinating. I hope you do too. In this episode, I interview a real life rocket scientist. But David Mitchell is much more. He's also an author, an entrepreneur, a Hollywood consultant, and the proponent of an amazing new method for sequestration of carbon you need to hear this out-of-the-box solution, something which will hopefully inspire all of us to do more and better every day. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Welcome everyone to our podcast today. I'm very excited about the opportunity to speak to David Mitchell, who's quite literally a rocket scientist. Indeed, he, he was a NASA award-winning entrepreneur and has published on topics like space, virtual reality, telepresence, you'll explain that to us, I hope, and the internet. And he was a leader of the team that invented the battery-powered laptop computer in 1982. The Lunar Teleoperations Model won in 1994, and he deployed hundreds of square miles of wireless communication for cities and public safety agencies over the past 20 years. He was also a member of the Citizens Advisory Council on National Space Policy with decades of experience in private space development, hello Elon, emergency preparedness and advanced communications. And currently, wouldn't you know, he consults in Hollywood on NBC Universal television shows as well as Disney Marvel films by assisting screenwriters, directors, and producers in Iron Men. Um, David Mitchell, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. I'm really honored to be here, and I'm delighted with what you're doing. It's fantastic. Well, thank you so much. So I think people are probably very interested to know, first and foremost, about NASA and space policy experiences that you've had. So if you have some highlights you'd like to share, that would be great. I I think... The most interesting thing for me is I've always felt
1: like the outsider looking in. And then I realized later on, like, oh, wow, I was actually there. And and that's exciting because when I was growing up in Florida uh, in elementary school, they would take us out to the playground to watch the Mercury flights, the very first manned flights by the United States. And obviously, I got hooked on space development and my whole life has been fascinated with that. So when I was doing work on the internet in, in the early 80s, when most people hadn't heard of it, I actually started using the internet in 1972, when there were exactly 28 computers in the world on it. And I either wow. got passwords or hacked into 14 of the 28 computers. So mm-hmm. you might say I visited half the internet, but when it was a little <laughs> bit smaller, it's called the DARPA net back then. Yes. And All of this led to an excitement about space and passion. And when I saw the need to share public awareness of it, it was a real honor to work with Jerry Purnell and others to be on the Citizens Advisory Council, because the goal was to get space policy directed towards reusable spacecraft, all the things that you see Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos doing now. So it's it's absolutely fantastic to so have seen it developed. And I got to go out to White Sands several times to monitor the progress on something called the DCX, which was the very first reusable demonstrator spacecraft. Mm. Um, $60 million of defense money got diverted to being used for reusable spacecraft development. So in the early 90s, this small, I think 60, feet tall, 60 foot tall, spaceship was built in Huntington Beach, and taken out to white sands missile range to be tested and flown and it flew over and over again breaking the myth that spacecraft couldn't be used more than once well and i mean i
0: thought it was very ridiculous. well established in the early cartoons of my childhood i don't i don't understand what took nasa so long <laughs> well i think that nasa is not in any way the limiting factor on this
1: it's just the technology had to improve and the desire for it and you know the 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 discussions we used to have in the 1980s were, is that if you wanted to fly from New York to Los Angeles, and you started out with a 747 aircraft, well, it would be like dropping the economy class in Arizona. And then first class sort of made it almost to New York. And then when you finally got to New York, the pilots landed. And then you had to rebuild the plane to fly the other way. That was the way we were doing it with spacecraft. You'd keep dropping pieces of it away. So it was exciting to think about what it would take to make things reusable, and now the dream is coming true. And it's very exciting to know that almost all new spacecraft designs are being reusable. And you know, reuse, recycle is very much what we want to do if we're going to save the planet. And that's yeah. there's basically the environment and space development, all of, and the internet.
0: It all interties together to make things better. Yeah, people don't usually think about reusable spacecraft when they talk about sustainability, but it, it certainly fits into the topic. You, all that waste is um, kind of remarkable. I'm curious, how do you feel about sort of the, I would say this society is split. I couldn't tell you the percentages, but I know people on both sides who think that trying to go to another planet, like you know the discussions about Mars, is one says, say, says it's a great idea. The other side said, my goodness, we have so much to do here to save the only planet that will really sustain us. Why are we spending the money to go there? Well, what, are you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it, it's, it's a tough one in the short term, because right now
1: we still deal with resource limitations. And we also understand that resources often mean damaging the planet. So we're in an era where we're abundance or resource constrained, and we're on the verge of having access safely and cleanly to unlimited amounts of resources. And that sounds slightly far-fetched, and it certainly was 100 years ago, but we're starting to learn as a civilization how to not be wasteful, how to be efficient. And when I give presentations on the future of abundance, which is one of the themes of the XPRIZE Foundation, and I highly support Peter DeMandis and Anusha Sari and the entire team there, they're amazing, is that I give a, a presentation, which I call the infinite triangle, which and the three sides of the triangle are affordable access to space and the concept of telepresence, and the base to that is the internet. I was going it's to ask together. you, what is
0: telepresence?
1: Okay telepresence is exactly what we're doing right now being here and there at the same time got it being able to be in one place and project your presence to another and the next step i'll I'll sidestep on this since you asked the next step on that is what i used to call android agents in the 90s and which is now becoming available as robotic avatars which is the ability to be here and do useful work there and Gosh, now we're off on another tangent. That's why we developed the Lunar operations Model in the early 90s to prove that you could be here and do something there. So people of all ages, physical conditions could be here and do useful work there. That And with the Lunar operations Model, we proved that anyone anywhere in the world could
0: operate equipment on the moon. And you say, well, why would you want to do that? Well, um, I I'll can, explain that. I can see why you want to be able to operate the equipment wherever it is, because man doesn't have to go there. But we're right. sending people to populate places like Mars. That's what I think the debate is about. Well, hang on. We're going to get there because okay. it gets fun. So so now you have the pieces of
1: being able to do useful things. And you start on this planet. This means that a person who might be 80 or 90 years old could grow things on another part of the planet by remote control. Okay. This means that you could build solar arrays in orbit to provide solar power to Earth safely 24-7 so that we wouldn't need to burn fossil fuels down here because the most efficient place to collect solar power is where there's no day and night and no clouds. And above the so, atmosphere, yeah. So the pieces start to come together to where if you have Affordable, clean access to outer space. And you have the ability to remote control things, and you have the internet so all people can participate in it. So this means whether it's a six year old child, or an 80 year old retired scientist, or an auto mechanic, or a sailor, or a farmhand, any one of these people can do anything, anywhere, anytime. This leverages just like we're using Zoom right now to create a podcast, and we're in different locations. Imagine if we could step through and physically help each other. This is what
0: telepresence is about. Yeah, and we're just about part. to see that. I get that part, but it, it still begs the question: Why would we want to bodily move to a place like Mars? No person can physically be in two places at once. So the question is. Why would we leave Earth before we give it our best shot to save it? And before we're literally dying, why would we want to go elsewhere?
1: By the way, I
0: totally agree
1: with you. But the nice thing is we actually have the resources to do both. So let me explain my thought on this. Then you can see how we might balance it. So first of all, the moment we can do work in outer space from Earth, for instance. Got that, yeah. A single you take a typical simple asteroid, anyone out there, you know, between Mars and Jupiter um, or even one closer. I mean, let's but say, what do you think? And I, this is the thing I usually do when I give a presentation is I ask, what do you think if we telerobotically robotically mind the precious metals so we're not tearing up under the ocean? We're not tearing up the Earth. If we mine the precious metals, the gold, the silver, the iridium, the platinum, the palladium, all the things we need for high-tech civilization, if we mine just one asteroid, one, and brought the material back to Earth, and of course, it's really easy to bring things back to Earth because gravity pulls it down. All you need is a parachute and a heat shield. Um, So what do you think you would get in terms of value? I mean, this is not about economics, and it's not profits here. It's just how much in current dollars would you get in terms of raw materials that you could use so that you wouldn't have to damage the Earth to get them? So just just offhand, what
0: do you think you'd get by mining one asteroid and bringing the, the good metals back to Earth? Just well, I mean, there's just, a, I can think of a whole array of benefits, not the least of which is saving Earth and all the impacts yeah. on Earth. But like you've talked about, it allows you to do things that we can't do with our limited supplies here and at great expense to do it here, we could do it at much lower cost. There'd be profits for the people who do it. I see all the benefits. I think it sounds great, that part, but I'm not physically going there. You're still on on remote work, which I get completely. That makes sense to me.
1: Sure, okay, so, so now let's play this though. What do you think it would be worth in dollars as an economic incentive for someone to do it? Forget the environmental benefits. Endless, what do you think do? Endless zeros, I have no idea. Yeah, how about 14 quadrillion dollars, enough precious metals to build all the things we want to build safely and cleanly for
0: 100 years for our entire civilization under its current growth rate Under for 100 years. I also have heartburn over the idea that we're growing and we're not sustaining. I think we need to actually reduce our population in a positive way to be much more sustainable because the Earth doesn't have that kind of uranium or iridium or whatever else you're looking for. Whereas uh, we're looking for biodiversity and air to mm-hmm. breathe, the clean water, and you can't import those. And we're yeah. gonna be hard put if we put more people on the planet without changing our current trajectory in the way we treat the planet. So how about this thought? This is the thing that I would like to see.
1: Eventually, I would like to see the earth be a garden planet where the entire planet is a protected, essentially a global national park. In other words, a global park. I love that. Now,
0: now here's the way you can do that. So no more fossil fuel farming, no more mining, all those things. And how about this? Just picture a hundred years
1: in the future. If we and, and I don't know if you've studied Gerard O'Neill's work of the 70s on space colonization.
0: Well, you know, if, I may have passed a book that had that in it, but I certainly didn't read it. Well, let me, let me throw this thought
1: out here. I mean, this is this is idealism to the max. Is The Earth is the cradle of civilization of mankind. But because we're changing as a species and unfortunately changing the planet to meet our needs instead of us changing to meet the planet's needs, If we move forward with space colonization, we're using telepresence to build the structures in space we would need to live and work and play. Imagine the population of Earth stabilizing or shrinking, but the number of people living in outer space, in the solar system, in created environments, optimized for humans. We now end up with the bulk of the human
0: civilization living and working and playing in space. So you're talking about literally their job is to go do work in space, even though their home is here. Well, no, I'm actually saying more and more people will eventually
1: want to live in space colonies because a lot of people have made the case that for a high-tech civilization, the more comfortable place to live generally, you know, for the 50 weeks a year or 48 weeks a year, is in a space colony that has all the features that you would want to live and play affordably, the new frontier, the high frontier as it's called. And the idea is that then you come to the earth uh, for vacation, for recreation, we do the manufacturing in space first, Hmm. then more and more people travel and live in space. And eventually you have the bulk of the human species being a spacefaring civilization, living and working in outer space. And for me, it's very easy to visualize. And for more and more people it is, because the one thing we don't wanna do is keep messing up the earth. And people like to live and play. And I don't know is you can stop people from having freedom, but what you can do is have responsibility with that freedom, which means we must protect the planet, but we must allow for those who wish to, to leave the planet,
0: and live and work in space. Well, you know, it's fascinating. This is the first inroad anybody's made in my consciousness on this subject. I can see it being wildly profitable and therefore many people will be attracted to it from a, a mega revenue standpoint. And maybe by sort of natural development become the place people will live because some high-tech civilization of some kind can be built there that people actually enjoy. And and I love the concept that they travel back to Earth for nature, which obviously is not going to be easy to do anywhere else because there's no air. So I, I think it's brilliant. Um, and you've convinced me that there's something there. Nobody else is- Let me able present to do something. Can, can, can I present just a thought? Yeah. When my grandfather first
1: moved to Wisconsin in the 1800s, This was when land was open for essentially homesteading and settlements. Right. And my mother told me that he had said that at a certain point, he stood on a hill, so this beautiful green area, and he just said, all this land that I see will be mine. Mine." And then he built the fences and built a beautiful farm that was for 100 years very productive. And when you start having telerobotic assembly, of massive space colonies with materials made from asteroids, you now have things that are 50 miles long, 10 miles in diameter with a slight spin, which would simulate normal gravity. So that means on a beautiful sunny day inside the colony, you'd look up from your farmland up through 10 miles of clouds, and maybe on a clear day, you'd see the land on the other side. And if you went for a canoe ride on the river you built, you'd end up back at home, you know, 30 miles later if it's 10 miles in diameter, in other words, mega structures would all be built without requiring any resources from Earth. And inside you would have air, you would have water. All of these things are in massive abundance throughout the solar system, not needing anything from Earth other than our desire to do it. You know, they ought to that's they the potential you... of what we're on the verge of right now.
0: Elon ought to hire you. To be his public relations guy because you're you're convincing me there is something real there the only thing i could think of if you left me alone for a while would be we'll discover some incredibly valuable metal or uh, some other ingredient that we don't have in abundance here and everybody can get rich off of that and that will cause space um explorers to go running around but what you've described is a completely different a vision for humanity, which frankly, makes a lot of sense. I don't know that I'd be going anytime soon. But I think it's fascinating, actually. And I'm excited about you know what you've introduced to my consciousness. Well, one thing to be very clear is none of these ideas are mine. This started
1: probably 100 years ago, even starting before that was Jules Verne. But Gerard O'Neill was the first one to explicitly show that these kinds of things could be done. And the argument for whether you have colonies or planets or things like that is, I think, an expression of human imagination to think beyond the day and to think, where do we go from here? Right. And... When I realized that there is real potential of extinction level events, you know, an asteroid hitting or things like that, there are things that are beyond our control. See, we can, we can undo the damage done to our environment if we by get up our real and do it. effort. And that's so important. But there may be things that nature can throw at us from outer space. I mean, I have this cute little slide of asteroids are nature's way of saying, how's that space program coming along? Yeah. Because the simple fact of the matter is, and, and I, at a Mensa national gathering, I gave a presentation on this about 20 years ago, and I know some FEMA uh, representatives actually took a copy of my presentation. I demonstrated how that if we saw an asteroid was coming, that would absolutely wipe out the world. I mean, nothing we could do to stop it. And if we had 30 years advance notice... There is a way we could build enough space colonies and enough spacecraft to physically evacuate everyone off the planet onto a safe space colony, all 7 billion people in a three to four year period by converting every airport to a takeoff point. other as I basically showed, there's a way to migrate the whole human species without any loss of life and then patiently with telerobotics Try to rebuild the planet after the asteroid thing. I mean, there is actually a way we could save every single person if we had enough time, even if the surface
0: of this planet was wiped out for 100 years. Can I I leave half the people and take the animals instead? Why not? I mean, seriously, all kidding aside, when I say take the people, I'm talking, you know, save life. You know and and it's totally doable i think but, we need to give everybody a quiz and if they can't answer the questions at least 50 percent correctly and i don't mean intellect i mean the right answers about the importance of for example biodiversity and life on earth yep. natural life on earth uh, i would okay. i'd say leave them here for the asteroid but that's just me well <laughs> I think that's rather draconian, but I know what you're trying to say. I is didn't that, bring the asteroid. I'm, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, now, the, the anyway, thing is, I'm I've worked so much, and, at, but uh, uh, there's you know, it's training. funny.
1: I've worked in public safety in emergency preparedness for so many years that I've realized there are so many people that are unprepared for anything yeah. that even in Southern California, where we know the risks of earthquakes. The number of people who don't have emergency water, an emergency backpack in the trunk of their car, don't have a plan, you know, and I just keep encouraging people, it's okay to think about the way things can go and fix it. And if you can compensate for the idea that you don't know when an earthquake will come and prepare for it, then we also need to understand that we're increasing the CO2 levels in our atmosphere. Yeah at a dramatic rate, we we don't want to wait until we destroy the world to fix that. And that's, that's of course, what got you and I talking together yeah, in the first place. We're back place, on the same page. Is that, yeah, is that we need to undo the damage. We need to think boldly for the future. Mm-hmm. And we need to think about where civilization will go in a hundred and a thousand years so that we end up letting the planet and all the animals on it. Because when I say the planet, I mean the whole thing, all of it. Right, You know, get back to normal. And it's I mean, basically, <clears throat> we're, we're a unique kind of species in that we not just learned how to use tools. We learned how to become an apex predator and change everything. And, and we need to kind of like calm down a little.
0: <laughs> yeah. Apex predators generally balance species. They don't decimate them. So I don't exactly. think we qualify as an apex predator. I think we, we are Conan yep. the destroyer. In- well, yeah. You yeah. know, the number of species per day that are being lost right
1: now is—I mean, see, this is where I think you and I have a genuine connection. Oh, yeah. And the only difference that I see at the moment is that we need to educate people that they can do things now
0: yeah, individually,
1: totally, and as a group, we can
0: solve these problems. I know well for the long term. And look, it's proof positive that you're capable of educating people because you just taught me stuff that I actually now find that very fascinating and I have to learn more about it, but I got to go move forward because there's so much more you can offer us here today that I think people need to learn. And I think if we whet their appetite on that one, like mine, that's a good thing. But I, I, I was going to ask you about how you got involved in developing the computer internet applications and stuff, but I don't think we have time. Um, and, we always
1: have the future.
0: Yes. And I was going to also ask you about your film and TV work quickly. Um, Disney movies, plot development, Marvel, uh, anything like that you can share? Is it all under wraps? No, no. there's a couple of really fun things to share
1: because I, I love to share knowledge. In words, I don't claim to like have developed new knowledge. I just love to learn it and share it. And... Um, One of the things is, is that when I was watching the Big Bang Theory on TV, I noticed how accurate the science was behind it. That led me to discover that there were consultants from the National Academy of Sciences that were, you know, connecting writers with this. And I said, wow, that would be interesting. So I just called the National Academy of Sciences and said, you know, if you have something where you don't have an expert that knows how to do it, Let me talk to them and see what we can do. So over the next several years, I kept getting emails and calls from all these different things. The most humorous thing I consulted on for me was Supergirl, where one of their episodes, I think it's episode 19 of season two, Alex's friend had been trapped underground and caught and was being held deep below where her wireless sensor couldn't locate her. And I said to the author, or to the writer, that what you could do is First of all, is there an internet connection there? And I said, well, yes, because they have a camera monitoring. I said, perfect. She just needs to pull out her implant, plug it in to the internet, and any good device will try to phone home for a software update. And then at their headquarters, they would detect that in their firewall is coming from the outside instead of the inside, trigger a security alert. From the IP address, find the location. Well, that's how they wrote it and used it. So that was my most fun one. But the one that's dearest to my heart that's really educational is when they were doing the Magic School Bus Rides again. Uh, Their episode on the internet, they called me. So I was the one that worked with the writers to make as much as possible in a 25-minute cartoon, their description of how the internet works accurate. And when you think about it, the internet has so many components to it and, but the concept's simple. The internet is an in agreement of how machines talk to each other, and therefore how we talk to the machines that talk to the machines that talk to us again. So the bottom line is, is that I helped them write that, and they wanted to have a shark who would bite an underwater cable. And I said, let's quit picking on the sharks. It's 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 uh, you know anchors and hooks and things like that that do it. So the broken fiber optic cable in it, they show up an anchor next to it. So it was a real honor to be part of that because that helps, you know, hopefully tens of thousands or millions of kids learn a little bit more about how the internet works. So for me, that was really valuable. Yeah, that's And cool. I've done a lot of other consults and met amazing people. And there's all kinds of stuff that is under wraps that's in development and there should be mm-hmm. movies coming
0: out. And I've just added my little tiny bits to make things more accurate. You know, that's amazing because, you know, I'm, Um, in the generation that started to hear about the internet when I was in college and it didn't actually manifest itself in any kind of useful sense until I was out of college and they had the Mars landing, you know, on the Hewlett Packards and those kind of things. And then eventually NPI and Wang and ultimately networking, but for whatever reason, because I was learning other things, I never really learned anything about how computers work. And so our kids, and uh, I mean, they're just incredibly facile with the technology. And um, I bother them all the time, you know, with the simplest stupid things that you should know that I don't know. And, you know, I'm sure I am forever branded as, you know, well, he's in that generation. They don't know anything about the computers. And, and they're right. So it's amazing that you were not only involved and still very up to date, but you were actually there in the developmental stages when in college we had punch cards that we put into computers and overnight they could do long division and we were just amazed by that. (laughs) And now it's just crazy. It's come a long way.
1: All all of my five young children are just amazingly adaptive to it and doing all kinds of things. And they take it such for granted that they have a super computer in their hand when they have a smartphone. When I was in high school, there were about 2000 students in San Clemente High. So 1970, 1971, Raytheon donates one mini computer to the school. So in the entire school, there is one computer the size of a refrigerator. Its memory capacity was 4K of core memory, not four gigabytes, four megabytes, 4,000 bytes, 4K. And the input/output device was an ASR33 teletype. you know, you would type on the keyboard and go. And that was what five of us were brave enough. To use and the teachers would actually let us get in there on our lunch hour to go play with it and
0: you know so it was pretty strange yeah and you know if you <laughs> ever get a chance and you go to see um houston uh the, the central um amphitheater where they were working on the, the lunar landing and the computers they're using there were, they, they were behind DOS. I mean, they were incredibly old and they were landing a craft on the moon using these really, really juvenile computers. Like you said, our phones today were, are infinitely more advanced than they were at that time. Well,
1: well, your microwave oven has more computing power in it than the lunar lander had.
0: Yeah, it's just amazing. So let's switch to something very EcoFlix-centric. And yes. uh, I want to start having you explain your involvement on the XPRIZE competition, what it is, and then I want to get into your part of it. So first of all, what is the XPRIZE competition for those who don't know? Right. Well, um, the Prize Foundation
1: was originally started by Peter Diamandis in the 90s to fund a private space flight to prove that private industry could do that. And over the years, it has grown to an amazing foundation with Peter Diamandis and Anush Ansari and a whole team at this point of hundreds of people. And I'm very honored to be one of those people now who helps out a little bit on developing prizes. Their whole concept is to figure where something needs to be done to make the world better and f- create a prize for it. And what happened is, is that because the climate situation is so serious, Peter Diamandis approached Elon Musk and had a video about how there could be a prize for carbon capture and sequestration, a hundred million dollar prize, the largest prize the X Prize Foundation has ever done. And they came up with a prize that they would invite many teams to compete to try to find ways in the hopes that many teams would find ways to get carbon out of the air to help reduce it and reduce the impact of climate change and so on. And when I heard that they were going to have a a live video on on YouTube, I think they're going to have a live video announcing the prize. I called up a very good friend of mine of 30 years, Greg Benford. And I said, Greg, you know, and this is honest to God's truth. I called him up and I said, Hey, you know, I'm going to watch this video because it's interesting. It's such a huge prize and such an interesting concept. And it's so in line with, you know, saving the world. Uh, and Greg just on the phone said to me, he says, well, David, I came up with how to do that 20 years ago. I go, oh, really? <laughs> and I said, well, let's watch the video. And he says, yeah, I'll send you some stuff. And and about an hour later, I got an email with, you know, about 50 documents in it and published papers going back 20 years. And I said, oh my God, you know, this can really work. This is so simple and so important and so scalable and so affordable. I mean, just well, let's I not get into all the check pro-
0: let's not get into your piece of that. So yeah. the guy the idea was that you were interested in competing for the X Prize because you thought you had something important for the world. Yeah, because I thought Greg had an idea that really made sense. Right. And before we go any further, we can share that, of course, that on EcoFlix now is crops. It's on the swim lane involving people making a difference. And it's a short video discussing your project but I wanna take it further today because yeah. a lot of work has been done. So let's start with describing what is CROPS, which is the name, the acronym for this solution that Greg and you have been developing since we, we first met. CROPS stands for Crop Residue
1: Ocean Permanent Sequestration. The concept is incredibly simple. You take crop waste, crop residue that is normally
0: left to rot or be burned. So basically take an example, you have a cornfield, they take the mm -hmm. corn off, all the stalk and leaves, et cetera, are just there dying. And the some of it goes into the soil,
1: some of it is used to make ethanol, some of it is used as feed for cattle, and some of it is burned. The point is it all ends up back in the atmosphere in months to years after it's been captured. So nature is capturing all this carbon every year and then
0: it is being released again. You and I have talked about this several times and so I have a pretty good feel for it, but I can remember the things that weren't obvious to me when we first talked. So when the plant is still alive, the corn or weed or barley, whatever it is, is gone you have the stalk, the leaves, etc. Now, like you said, many farmers just burn their fields to ready for the next crop. And that, as an example, releases the carbon. Can you explain what the green represents when it's still there, as opposed to when it starts to darken and die, if they leave it or they burn it to speed up the process? What is What's the difference there? What's going on from a carbon standpoint? From a carbon standpoint, the plant
1: through photosynthesis is actually taking CO2 out of the air and converting it to solid carbon in the fibers in the plant. In other words, it's actually doing the capture of the carbon and turning it from a gas to solid carbon.
0: Which is why we talk about wanting green trees, plants, you know, marshes, all these things, because they help convert uh, the CO2 into the oxygen we breathe hmm and it is then let to go back into the
1: atmosphere over a short period of time so in other words with every year carbon is being pulled out of the air but then let to go back it is like wasted so to speak okay and the crops concept ocean permanent sequestration is to take that crop residue and deposit it safely in the deep ocean
0: in areas where it'll do the least amount of environmental damage. Okay, so let's stop there for again, taking it piece by piece. So you're Mm -hmm. talking about plants that are rotting, dying, or more importantly, in many cases burned, so that the smoke takes it right into the atmosphere and uh, it is eventually gonna go where? During that process where the CO2 is released, where does it go? It's okay. Well, it
1: goes back into the atmosphere. That's and then the thing. where does it go? Well, it stays there until the next year when it's pulled back down again. Right. And where does it go
0: then? It's, it's a cycle. It's right. called so the it natural carbon cycle. When it comes down in the planet, it ends up either on land or in the ocean. And since the ocean is a large part of our planet, does a great deal of it end up in the ocean? almost all of it ends up there in the long-term. Okay, the ocean because...
1: is the sink for carbon in the
0: long-term. Right. And right. I, I
1: have a little graph and, and thing that can show that if you want Yeah, to see it'd be great. Okay. Let see. me uh, do that real quick here. Okay. Can you see that? Okay. Indeed. Now this is an actual example uh, based upon satellite data. And this is in the public domain. It's not something we developed and it's been shared by the developers. Uh, The green in the inhalation shows the carbon being pulled out of the air and the brown represents the release of carbon from the plants
0: essentially as they die and and go back. Okay, so So let's take this a step at a time. I know you're facile mm -hmm. with it and it's obvious, but for many people, it, it isn't going to immediately hit. And I think it's critically important. What you're showing in these various Parts of the world in various months of the year, when the growing cycle produces the largest amount of development of plant life, it becomes green because between sunlight and sequestering the carbon from the air, it turns into the plant that is seen by us as green, both in life and on this model, right? Right. And then when it reaches the seasons of the year where the crops are no longer growing, they have to, something happens to the carbon. And what you're showing here is the green disappears because those plants are now releasing the carbon into the atmosphere where the cycle starts again.
1: Exactly. And um, I think you explained that beautifully. I mean, now you can be our PR person <laughs> on this one. right? Now here's the the carbon cycle in general which is that before we had industrial, you had a pretty reasonable balance between the absorption and emission of the CO2 each year as an, as an annual cycle.
0: Yeah. some of it, Yeah. For the, let's take it a step at a time. For those who don't have video, they're listening in their car or anything like this, what you have here when you're describing the carbon cycle is the demonstration that the emissions go to the atmosphere, and then they come back down in various places, but often that is run into freshwater streams, which eventually are deposited in oceans. Hence, eventually, even when it lands on land, a great proportion of that goes into the rivers, then oceans, and it then is captured in that way, but in the meantime, it's gone through the atmosphere where it's caused the damage, and the emissions process where it is actually released by the plants uh, is a bad thing. And this this is showing how to, uh, basically your program is how to interrupt that cycle where it takes a long time, much of it spent in the atmosphere where it's harmful and save it from going through that slow process of rivers and oceans to accelerating that, to put that carbon into the deep ocean, basically way ahead of when it would have been there and skipping the step where it harms the atmosphere.
1: Yeah, exactly. And and you see, eventually excess carbon is gonna end up simply due to gravity at the bottom of the ocean. It may take a million years, but it will flow from the fields to the rivers, to the river deltas out to the ocean and then to the deep ocean as sediment. And then of course that be- creates a lot of the capability to have what we call fossil fuels, which in the industrial cycle over the last few hundred years, we burn it, which means we now put more net carbon in the air, in the air each year than is brought back down. That's why the CO2 levels have been going up so dramatically the last 200 years with and, and essentially, it's an uncontrolled experiment. Whether one accepts the fact of climate change or not, the numbers on c o two have gone up dramatically. So yeah. at the very least, we have an uncontrolled experiment
0: going on, right? With and potential this is, consequences that are enormous. yes. and the people the people that hear us talking all the time about c o two, c o two, greenhouse gases, blah, blah, blah. To them, this is sort of meaningless because they don't understand that we can't breathe in that CO2 without the plants, trees, etc., converting it to oxygen. And that's nature's beautiful formula, simple as it may seem to describe. It's very complicated the way it actually happens. But these plants are essential to convert that so that they are needing CO2 to, to grow and they give us back oxygen that we need to grow. Mm-hmm.
1: And of course, this is where we're trying to use the crops approach to rebalance
0: things Right as so we convert. And you yeah, can absolutely. walk us through what is actually happening when you are executing on this crops plan. So let me just set the stage mm-hmm. if I can do it right. You've got fields all over the world where people have taken the crop, whatever it is, and they've got the residue that we've been talking about. And in many cases, they burn it, which is the worst possible thing they can do for the atmosphere. And if we're talking about carbon, uh, they would eventually, if the countries of the world rally, they would be forced to pay carbon credits because of their very high level of carbon emission. So along comes David and his team, and you say, don't burn your carbon, I've got a better plan. What's the better plan for the farmers?
1: The better plan for the farmers is to let the process work of taking it and transporting it and safely putting it in the deep ocean. And when you say taking it,
0: what you mean is literally collect the greenery while it's still green, hasn't decayed and released carbon on its own, And you package it. How do you package it to take it to the ocean? Okay, well, in an ideal world, and believe me,
1: this is where the devil's in the details, because if you do it sloppily, it's not efficient. But if you do it well, we can be ninety-two to ninety-five percent carbon efficient, meaning that by the time we get into the deep
0: ocean, we've only burned a small amount of carbon to get there in terms of diesel fuel such. The price of the candle, if you will, to get it yeah. to the ocean is, you need to drive things that use fossil fuel today. You need to use boats that use fossil fuel today. And that consumes seven and a half percent of the carbon you're saving for a net savings of 92 and And as we
1: get more towards wind and renewable energy powered transportation, which we're all moving towards, it eventually approaches almost 97% and hydrogen efficiency. or electric power to eliminate yeah. driving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's basically if there are many steps, because some of it is ground transportation, some is ocean transportation. The more we can move towards autonomous, the more we can move towards renewable energy, the more we can move to you know, uh, optimized transportation methods and picking the right crops in the right regions and putting them in the right safe deep ocean areas where you're minimizing any potential impact to the minimal amount of life down there. See, there's no oxygen. There's no. In um, the deep oh, ocean. I should say no. There's very low oxygen in the deep ocean. Very cold, mm-hmm, very much pressure, but there's still life down there. So that's why we're working so closely with a number of research groups and everything because. There are identifiable areas where the least amount of influence can be done. And because you are putting a tiny amount of protein down there, the same as when whales die or, uh, you know, the natural decomposition of animals in the ocean drops to the bottom, we may be providing a small amount of additional food that can benefit the minimal amount of life down there. But, but let's you have the specific question about packaging. We do it in bales. I- but you don't use plastic, right? right? You use steel banding or things like that. And believe me, we are working on all kinds of optimizations because everything is about taking it from the field and getting in the deep ocean carbon efficiently, environmentally safely, and thinking long-term in areas. And here's the good news. When you put it down there, the mixing between the deep ocean and the top ocean is measured in hundreds of years which means we are buying for humanity hundreds to thousands of years of time. And again, as long as there's agriculture, there's going to be crop residue. So this doesn't mean growing new things, building new industrial air capture plants, which means this is very affordable and it's creating and maintaining jobs for normal hardworking people, farmers,
0: truck drivers, sailors, and so on. But going back to the scene of the crime, if you will, the plants have been, the the crops are gone and the residue is sitting there. Those people who are burning eventually, if they aren't already, especially industrial farmers, are gonna have to pay carbon credits in our current evolution in order for us to do any good. And those of us who are a little more familiar with carbon credits than others know that carbon credits are not a solution. They're just a way to minimize you know, use of carbon because people don't want to pay that tax, if you will. So they maybe Mm -hmm. hopefully will look for a better way. So here you are offering farmers who are going to be facing outlay expense to burn Mm -hmm. or allow their carbon to release naturally. Um, And they'll actually have a benefit by bailing it up and putting it in the ocean. And can you describe how you see this being a benefit to them? Well, you, you've just defined it perfectly. In other words, the
1: the you know, and there are terms these days that are becoming very well known about environmental justice, social justice, and wise governance. You know, I mean, the 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 three letter word for that now is ESG, or the acronym for it. This is massively beneficial in terms of getting more money in the hands of those people that most need it and for developing nations that have agriculture and don't have the money to build multi-million dollar direct air capture machines and may not have the proper geological formations to put CO2 as a gas down in the ground, which may or may not leak. um, This is a way that everywhere in every country People can participate in this beneficially. And and the benefit to the farmer is, is threefold, is if you think about it in the past, farmers were heroes. They're feeding the world. Now they're the villains. They're damaging the world. You see, this is a chance to genuinely, without punishing a farmer for farming, to be able to help the environment. And the same thing is true for truck drivers and sailors, because It's really important for most people to know that they're helping, not hurting. Most people do care. No, most people really do. And I know there are some that they just look at numbers and they don't care how they get there, but there are a lot of people that really do care. And as long as we can encourage, shall we say the good guys to win, the beauty of the crops approach is it's inherently moral and it's not a greenwash to allow us to continue doing what we're doing. It is a genuine approach to use natural carbon recycling to solve this problem while we transition to a long-term
0: environment that's stable and well, sustainable. plus, yeah. once you are a farmer who is now removing your residue and putting it in the deep ocean, now you're earning carbon credits instead of paying carbon credits, you're on the positive side of that equation. Yeah. So it's an incentive for farmers, not only just to do the right thing, but it saves them the cost of burning it. And they get a positive return for safely sequestering it for 400, 800 years as we figure out over the, hopefully we're still around all of the many years, to figure out how long it does it take for it to dissolve. And in fact, if it's released at the deep ocean, if I understand from our prior conversations, it may well end up being right where it would have been anyway. Just it didn't go through the cycle of destroying the atmosphere before it found its way through streams, deltas, oceans, and get to the bottom. And by the way, there's a couple of additional thoughts here that are
1: really exciting, is that because there's a land transportation component, and the more efficient the land transportation is carbon-wise, the better the quality of the credits, there's now an incentive to use renewable energy-based electric transportation, such in other words, basically green transportation is incentivized. Right, same. Without the government having to provide a incentive. We've got that
0: too. It's in your financial interest.
1: Yes, yeah, it changes the whole game. And, and the same thing for ocean transportation. For thousands of years, civilization has moved all over the world on the ocean with ocean currents and wind. Since this is not a perishable commodity, it's already perished. And since it's not a next day Amazon delivery, there's no urgency. We can afford, no pun intended, the slow boat to sequestration. We can afford to have zero energy cost transportation by sea, because if it takes ten days or a week to get to the proper
0: sequestration zone,
1: it doesn't matter.
0: yeah, it's not only you can afford it, you'll actually make money by doing it that way. Um, exactly. Now here all here, the here, economics works, yeah, which is now, so important in this here, world, yes, it is to most people. Here's an interesting yeah. piece of this. Uh, I have heard others say, well, wait a second, vital to the enrichment of the soil is the biological nature of residue mixing with the soil to enrich it so that it's available for the next growing crop or whatever it might be. How does removal of the residue affect the usefulness of the soil in the next cycle? Oh, that is one of the most important
1: questions you've asked so far and that everyone asks. Just a the... guess. No, 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 well then really good guess. Because see, here's the thing, to a farmer, the most precious thing is their soil. That is their resource. That is their livelihood. And all of the calculations and research that's been done over the last 20 years has been based upon USDA recommended amount of removal because you you do have minerals and things in the crop residue. And each farmer knows how much they have to take off of their, basically how much residue stays for the health of the soil and how much is removed so the crops process is not about taking a hundred percent of the residue it's about taking the appropriate amount based upon government suggestions and most importantly the farmer's own decision that's the thing this does this is not some government mandate each farmer decides how much residue And all of our calculations show that it's normally between 30 and 60%. And all of the impact of our being able to remove one to 3 billion tons a year of carbon out of the air is based upon appropriate removal of residue, not
0: enforced excessive. This is all about sustainability. And what about the, the residue that they're leaving? Would they be better off to furrow it so that it's underground or leaving it on top where it eventually releases the carbon? Well, each farmer has their own optimization
1: because if you take too much residue, then you're depriving phosphorus and other things, and then you have to chemically add it. So what happens is is that each farmer or farming group and for each crop in each region will determine how much should be mixed into the soil, but you don't leave it lying on top generally because that's the least efficient. But the idea is that it eliminates the need for burning. And in cases where, you know, they've been taking like corn stock residue and feeding it to cattle as a feed, it's really not good for the cattle, but the farmers have to move it somewhere and they try to get some amount of income. Obviously the better shifting is to pay the farmer to sequester and store the carbon. And with that added money, there's now money available for better feed. And notice we're trying not to get political about saying whether and how much cattle and things, because these are policy decisions to be made on a governmental level. What we're providing is a tool for small and large nations to use individual farmers or consortiums. The whole idea is this is a tool to solve the problem and not a demand
0: to do things a certain way. Right. And of course, it's, as you said, a very low tech solution to a very high, high necessity problem. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's talk to probably the heart and soul of most businessmen. What's in it financially? You've done a lot of work on this financial model. What do you see in the future changing hands, assuming this is accepted and endorsed? Well, you know the
1: the obviously I've, I'm in re- I'm truly honored. We have a team of about sixteen people that are just amazing. So we've got this group of people who are all passionate about doing the right thing long term with all these different skill sets. On the financial side, you know we've have people with experience in ocean transportation and land transportation, and it is all about efficiency and dollars on that. And we're looking at a totally globally fractured carbon market and things, you know, like you have a a dollar that flies pretty much everywhere in the world. You have a Euro. It flies pretty much everywhere in the world. In other words, you have currencies. We don't have an international carbon currency. So therefore the European union has certain arrangements. The other countries have individual ones and There's no common currency, you might say. There is an international. Yeah, and it's working towards that. Now, last December, uh, the value of a carbon offset in the European Union went above 120 euros, and the value of carbon offsets and credits is gradually rising, and for us, the magic number is around $100 a tonne and that's a metric ton, uh, T-O-N-N-E, of carbon. And the reason that's a magic number that is talked about a lot is that seems to be a number that businesses can afford to pay to offset and incentivize becoming cleaner. And it's a number that is actually one where the crops process, because it's so much logistics and there is it's it's a simple concept, but very hard to implement effectively. You have to really analyze every step to make it work and do it safely for the long-term and monitor it for the long-term. So the bottom line is this, is that when the world can assemble an organized plan to pay for carbon credits at about a $1 dollar or a hundred dollars a ton, um, We're under that cost, which means there's room for profit margin, which means that it can expand globally and exponentially and scalably. Whereas right now, carbon credits, some of them are very inexpensive, some of them are questionable in terms of their permanence or verifiability. I don't want to use any flaky words here, but the bottom line is there's quality. And there's not quality. And what I see happening over the next five years is the stability of a fair and verifiable method of getting what you pay for. Right. Meaning but that's, that,
0: this is out yeah. of our immediate control. Just talking from, that's right. so from the side of the businesses that decide to get into the business of mm-hmm. crops sequestration. Uh, mm-hmm. What kind of dollars are out there to be earned by bailing transporting and depositing this residue in the deep ocean well by 2030 it'll be about 50 to 100 billion dollars a year
1: that's the number you, i was looking for yeah and see they, there's no reason why we can't globally be doing a gigaton a billion tons a year by 2030 notice that's way before 2050 we could be 2 to 3 Billion tons by 2040.
0: Now let's. This is huge. Yes, it is. And let's talk uh, on the other side of the equation. That was the commercial or the employment side of the equation. Governments Mm -hmm. are in Sharm El Sheikh now at COP 27, talking about how are we going to reach our goal in the next bumpy bump years to sequester 37.5 percent of the total carbon emissions that are now killing us. What Mm -hmm. would this do if we were sequestering the carbon pursuant to the calculations you've done at the levels you've just talked about financially? What would it sequester in the way of carbon worldwide? Well, worldwide, there is real potential
1: to do a billion tons a year by 2030, which is one-sixth of the net increase each year. So make an actual like 15% dent In the global problem by 2030 at a cost of 100 billion a year which is less than any alternative that we've seen the direct air capture plants are typically 10 years further out and 10 times the cost
0: now if you're talking about a cost the cost is paid by industry that wants to pay to sequester carbon the right way and then there's money transported for carbon credits. So you've mm-hmm. got payment for the transport to dump it and bail it and dump it. And then you've got payment for the carbon credits. And then on top of that, you have a percentage of the current carbon emissions that are mm-hmm. being uh, eliminated. And, and what percentage is that of the current emissions that you could avoid? Well, current emissions
1: are about six gigatons a year, the net difference. That's, that's the numbers that we're hearing. And I mean, this is subject to analysis, but six gigatons is a commonly discussed number. That means that by 2030, we could be taking one out of those six. And by 2040, maybe two or three out of that six. And if the world works towards decarbonization through sustainability and renewability, we might be have a, a point where at 2050 we're truly carbon neutral on just crops alone and cutting in half the emissions. I mean, it's that big a deal potentially.
0: Yeah. Pretty amazing. And yeah. low tech, entirely doable tomorrow by anybody who's listening. Yeah. But here
1: I want to mention something. It's not really low tech. It's simple, but the technology of being able to effectively analyze, plan and monitor it is the critical part because it doesn't work if you're sloppy. Like if if you drive crop residue for 2000 miles in
0: trucks, (laughs) no, it it is all about how you do it. Yeah, well, I say low tech meaning well within our capabilities if done correctly and low tech in that you don't need any fancy equipment There's no new evolution or brain trust or computers or anything else required. You can do it tomorrow if you do it correctly. And that's the point of this done. Right. We interrupt the carbon cycle by short circuiting it in a way that dramatically helps earth makes money for farmers, makes money for businessmen and cuts down on our global carbon um, problem, which frankly, if, if we were having this conversation at COP27 and everybody was listening, I think their jaws would all drop because none of them are even thinking about it. Well, that is very true. And I really thank you for stating that so succinctly
1: because what it is, is that sometimes the simple ideas, because they're not flashy, don't get attention and they don't have advocates. And one of the things is we've noticed in most of the publications they talk about soil sequestration, they talk about kelp, they talk about direct air capture, and there's this big blind spot. And this concept was first published in 2001, republished again in 2009, and all kinds of research experiments for 14 years, You know, real world research. And um, it's been an uphill challenge, but the good news is, Is that we're working with the environmental protection agency on permitting to do this right they're very supportive we have a meeting scheduled next week with the department of energy which is now listening and i think you know and we've all talked about this within the team the world is ready for this and looking for it and needs some hope and hope that's not greenwash and hope that's not some science fiction magic and the inherent logic of taking what nature gives us each year and putting some of it in the bank, so to speak, solves the problem, but fortunately is not so pervasive that it can be used as an excuse not to do better in the way we handle our mm. economy. And that, that's important. That's why several of the team members are very supportive of this, because it is a morally acceptable choice. It's not a way to allow business
0: as usual to continue forever. Unless people think that my background, which I try to tailor to my topics, was a mistake until now, this is the deep ocean where we're sequestering the carbon bales. So that was the intent of that. And, uh, David, I really want to thank you, and I hope everybody listening will talk to whoever you know who needs to hear this, make them either come to EcoFlix or call David or somebody to <laughs> make sure they're on board because this is important and we desperately need everybody helping um, with all of the aspects of our current dilemma, but this is a very important piece of the puzzle and, and I really thank you for coming on today and telling us all about it. Well.
1: David, thank you so very, very much because I'm really honored to be doing my bit to help here. I'm. We just have such an amazing team. We've gotten so much support and the XPRIZE Foundation is fantastic. You know, if it wasn't for their efforts to try to make the world better, that I wouldn't have been sensitized to this particular path. And uh,
0: I'm glad to be, you know, doing what I can. Well, that's so great. Let's, let's take it to the next level. And again, I appreciate everything. And we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please share it with your family and friends who want to join with us to truly make a difference. Remember, think big, start small, but act now. Thank you.